Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From an undisclosed broadcasting location... This is a test. For the next 60 seconds, this station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcast system. America, here comes the relief from the pain. Unapologetically, this is Lock and Load with Bill Frady. Hour number three. This is Lock and Load. And here we go. We're going to uh, we're going to we're going to leave off, and we're going to finish up with with Dean Weingarten, a writer at AmmoLand.com, with well over twenty two hundred plus articles. You know Dean's story. I don't need to tell you about Dean's story. And Dean is still on the on the road. You're in Wisconsin somewhere. Yes, in northern Wisconsin, and it's been snowing on and off all day. Really? Yeah. It's in the <laughs> well. I mean, what's it been doing in uh, in uh, in Yuma? I haven't really checked, but I suspect it's probably in the 80s there. <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's talk about Contreras. Let's talk about the case of Hanson v. District of Columbia. This uh, this is an interesting, interesting little ditty coming out of this judge. Uh, tell me what your what your thoughts are on this. Well, it is because, and this case has been going on for a while. I think a couple of years. So it actually started well before Bruin. Uh, was decided last year. And what it is is that there are some gun owners who have permits in the District of Columbia. But the District of Columbia says you may not have any magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, although they make an, an exception for tubular magazines on 22 rimfire rifles. So they just say that magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are bad because people can do bad things with them. So we're going to forbid people from having them. Now, what's strange, I mean, I've read the decision. A decision was issued on April 20th, an opinion. And Judge Contreras says that magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are not protected under the Second Amendment. They are not part of things protected by rights protected by the Second Amendment. Now, what's really strange is I'm I'm reading the decision, and in the Bruin decision, uh, Judge Thomas in the decision said, look, you cannot do interest balancing. That was decided when the Second Amendment was ratified. And he said you have to look at the history to see if you can find any analogs that are close to what was all, what existed at the time, you know, some historical analog of a law that was similar to what you have 
what you want to uh, find as uh, or attempt to find as constitutional today. And the gist of the argument with magazines is, one, they are arms as considered under portable arms, as considered under the Second Amendment, because they're an integral part of functioning for a lot of weapons, firearms. And they are commonly owned, they're in common use. And those are the two major premises that go to determine if something is protected uh, by the Second Amendment. And what we find is that Judge Contreras, Rudolph Contreras, he acknowledges that they are in common use in the United States of America. He says they have evidence overwhelmingly, you know, 27% of all the guns out there have these magazines. There's tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of them in the United States. He says, no question, they're in common use. And he acknowledges that under the Second Amendment, they are arms as defined by the words of the Second Amendment. He says, yeah, yeah, they, they fit. There's been all these cases talking about magazines, how you need a magazine to, for the firearm to function as intended. So these magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are arms as defined by the Second Amendment. Well, you would think, well, that's it. They're in common use. They're arms. They're protected. But Judge Contreras goes to great lengths to find a way to determine that magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are not included under the rights of the Second Amendment. And he does this with some, I would say, linguistic juggling and some stretching and twisting of logic. And he depends quite a bit on words in Heller 2, which is the decision that was not appealed to the Supreme Court. It's just in the, the Court of Appeals for the District Court of Columbia. So it's in that, uh, that appeals district for uh, the District of Columbia. And in Heller 2, they made, tried to make some distinction. They said, well, just because something is in common use, what you really have to look at is if it's commonly used for self-defense. And so... Here's what Judge Contreras said, that's from the opinion. He said, more importantly, Heller, too, recognized that whether large-capacity magazines are in common use is merely the beginning of the analysis. The full inquiry is whether the prohibited weapons are typically possessed, dot, 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 which leaves out a bunch of stuff, for lawful purposes. Okay, and then he says, on that critical question, Heller, too, expressed uncertainty. Based on the record as it stands, we cannot be certain whether these weapons are commonly used or, or are useful. Now, notice the difference between commonly used and are useful, specifically for self-defense. That is the question this court must now resolve. Now, that's the end of the quote. So you see, he's he's already done a couple of linguistic tricks here. Right. In common use is not in common use. It's only common use for self-defense. Right. Not any of the other common. And he says, 
to be. It's also a question of are they useful for self-defense? Now, as I see it, that's a direct interest balancing statement. The judge doesn't get to decide if something is useful or not. That's interest balancing. The people already decided because it's commonly in use. But to go on, so that as I see it, the simple and straightforward understanding of whether magazines with a capacity of over 10 rounds are right. typically in common use for lawful purposes is clear. There's tens or hundreds of millions of such magazines in the United States. United States. Their standard capacity with dozens, probably hundreds of models of guns. And if these standard capacity magazines were typically possessed for unlawful purposes, the number of crimes committed with them would be astronomical. But we don't see that. There's probably more than 100 million firearms that use these kind of magazines. So the mere fact that they have common possession, that they're commonly in possession, equates to common use. I have it in my possession. I am using it to deter crime just by its possession. I use it for target practice. I, I use it to collect, as I collect guns, to impress others for deterrent effect. I mean, those are all lawful purposes. And so the big thing I see Judge Contreras doing is working very hard to limit the term common use to only those uses specifically documented where more than 10 rounds were fired right. on the record Hang for on. self-defense. Hang on right there, because uh, I, I want to continue this when we get back. Uh, this article just got published uh, on the 24th at Ammoland.com. This is one of 2,200-plus others that Dean has there available to you. And I seriously recommend you go check out everything he's got written there. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. is Lock and Load, and I am speaking with Dean Weingarten, and we were just talking about this uh, this magazine thing. And see, here's the thing about this that I, I would really love to, and I, I don't want to, you know, give the judge any other ideas, because obviously he's going to twist it one way or the other. Isn't the beauty of the semi-automatic not about the magazine, but just of the way it functions? So if you got 10 rounders, fast magazine change. If it's 17 rounders, fast magazine change. Isn't, isn't that just the case of things? Well, that is an important consideration. And, of course, if people are intent on doing harm, they can do a New York reload and just have another gun. Sure. So it's, I think the idea that magazines with capacity of over 10 rounds on a strictly utilitarian basis, which is not allowed under the Second Amendment, according to the Bruin decision, 
But on a strictly utilitarian basis, it's a very difficult case to make that magazines more than 10 rounds contribute any significant amount to uh, criminal deaths. And certainly they you cannot make the case that they contribute to more suicides because typically suicides don't take more than 10 rounds to commit. Yeah. So it's, it's really a kind of nonsensical case. It's a, what I see it, it. It is a means end testing. Well, we think these are bad, so we should ban them. And that's not allowed under the second amendment. So let me continue with the argument that judge Contreras sure. is making. He gives the other side, which would be the District of Columbia side, he gives them their rationale. He says the district disagrees. It argues that large capacity magazines are not in common use for self-defense. And notice right off, he's limiting the common use to this very specific thing. First, it claims that large capacity magazines' military characteristics make them a poor fit for self-defense and take them outside the scope of the Second Amendment. That's an incredible claim right there. Then, second, the district claims that law-abiding individuals do not use large-capacity magazines for self-defense because incidents where a civilian actually expends more than 10 bullets, and it's kind of interesting using bullets instead of cartridges or rounds, in self-defense are, quote, vanishingly rare. And he finishes by saying, the court agrees with the district on both arguments. But as I said, this is exactly the means-ends argument. That is, saying we have these ends we want to accomplish, and therefore this is a means to accomplish those ends. That is forbidden for Second Amendment arguments under Bruin. Bruin says, no, you're not allowed to decide that. The government is not allowed to decide that. If the arm is in common use for lawful purposes, and they don't limit it to just self-defense, it is protected. Now, part of this argument, and it's in the both the first part and the second part that he says, the District of Columbia makes, is this bizarre claim that arms that are useful for military purposes, such as those used by a militia, are not protected under the Second Amendment. But this is truly bizarre. For 80 years, most of the progressive scholars and legal experts explicitly said only arms that are useful for military purposes are protected. That was based on the Miller decision. When they said if it's not related to the performance of a militia, it's not protected. Well, the vast preponderance of scholars agree. One purpose of the Second Amendment is to preserve an armed population could bring their arms to service in a militia when the need arises. And virtually all scholars agree that the Second Amendment protects arms that can be used by a militia. So 
these arguments, and you see them. There's quite a few different people are trying to put them forward that claim that arms useful to a militia are explicitly excluded from protection by the Second Amendment. Right. They're, they're just counterfactual to the very text of the amendment itself. Right. I don't know. I don't know how many arguments I've heard where people say, well, look, it says militia, militia, militia. These are not militia arms. And I'm going, well, just anything, almost anything can be used by a militia. But the AR-15, which takes much of the same training to operate as an M-16 or a a, uh, a 4, you know, an AR-4, it's Contreras. It just doesn't make sense because they're ideal militia arms. You don't waste a lot of ammunition with full auto. They're accurate, easy to use. They have similar controls in a lot of ways to the common rifles used in the Army and Navy and Coast Guard. So training on those rifles is transferable in a lot of ways. I, it's such a silly argument. It strikes me that maybe Contreras is working to clarify the Bruin decision by prompting the Supreme Court to note magazines holding more than 10 rounds are obviously useful in militias for the common defense. But that seems unlikely. Uh, he's using Heller II as precedent. And then he's saying, well, military arms are not protected, but that doesn't make any sense. And he fails to mention the opinion of Judge Benitez in the Ninth Circuit. And Judge Benitez had a case where he considers the AR-15 and whether they can be banned. And he says, no, they're protected by the Second Amendment. And he says they're protected by the Second Amendment in part because they're excellent militia arms. And militias under the Second Amendment are to be drawn from an armed population. So this idea that the Second Amendment does not protect arms useful for the military is one of the silliest I have heard. And the only thing I think it has any traction at all is because you've got this silly mantra out there, weapons of war don't belong on our streets. Well, why not? I mean, it's just an emotional argument. It doesn't have any sense. Right. So how are you going to protect uh, your streets if you don't allow weapons of war on it? How are you going to get them off of the street? Well, that's the other question, obviously. But, I mean, it's just bizarre well, I mean, to claim you, that they're not protected. Well, but the, but the other thing is this. Uh, the weapons of war are not actually in the streets. The people that sure. the, the people the law abiding gun owners are not out there walking around with them ba- banging on their knees or anything. Uh, and, and the people, well, maybe in some states. You know, we I have had what, the open carry demonstration. I tell you what, I tell you, what, hang on, hang on for me. We'll be right back. Talking to Dean Weingarten. This is Lock and Load. Over 25 
25 years, Aero Precision has paved the way as a leading manufacturer of American-made AR parts. Aero Precision caters to the rifle builder by engineering quality receivers, hand guards, and other essential parts. Aero Precision's added enhancements create a smooth build process from start to finish for beginners and seasoned builders. Whether this is your first rifle or your 50th, Aero Precision offers everything you need to make a quality AR at an affordable price. In the 21st century, the handgun has become the preeminent self-defense tool. At CNH Precision, we specialize in taking your weapon to the highest degree of functionality possible. With a complete array of goods and services specializing in red dot sight installation, CNH Precision will help you realize the most effective handgun the first time. If you need slide milling, installation, or accessories, go to chpws.com. CNH Precision. Welcome to the Boom Squad. At Chambers Custom, we have one job. We strive to build the most obsessively reliable, accurate, and beautiful pistols for the discriminating gun owner. Using the ageless 1911 design with a 21st century approach to each part and component, Chambers Custom meticulously begins each pistol as a standalone project, creating a bespoke, handcrafted, peerless firearm. They integrate all of the internal, external, and intrinsic elements that make a custom 1911 unique. Go to ChambersCustom.com. Chambers Custom, truly the mechanical advantage. At Spikes Tactical, we are all shooters with a very simple mission. Make the best product we can perfect at the best possible price for our consumers. We strive to produce the best components and rifles available. With quality control second to none, because real-world events don't allow for a second chance. Whether you are an operator, competitor, or home defender, Spikes Tactical will serve you well. Go to SpikesTactical.com. Spikes Tactical, 100% American-made to the highest standard. such thing as a fair fight, and we bring the unfair advantage that is the 2011 platform. Dominate. At Staccato, we know the most important gun you own is the one that you're carrying when you're facing that threat to life and freedom. Win. We want you to enter that objective confidence that you are carrying the best gun in the gunfight. No compromise. No sacrifice. Staccato2011.com. Stand ready to face down the darkness with 2011. Holster.com, the home of DeSantis-quality built American-made products for 45-plus years. Supporting police and government contracts from first responders to responsible citizens. Holster.com is your source for quality American-made leather and Kydex holsters for the armed American. For concealed carry or open carry, Holster.com has what you need. We didn't invent concealment. We perfected it. Go to Holster.com now and buy a DeSantis holster today. What's in a name? If that name is Ace Firearms, you've just entered a very expensive business. First, a fully appointed gun shop with all the guns, ammo, and accessories you could possibly imagine. But then you enter the manufacturing facility that is home to Red Alligator Concealment, Militia Arms Customs, and so much more. Ace Firearms is beyond a simple gun shop. This is a totally peerless operation. To find out more, go to acefirearms.com. Ace Firearms. This is only the beginning. At MGS, we have what it takes to reinvent yourself. With a curriculum designed to balance work, family, and a gun repair education, MGS provides the gateway into one of the fastest-growing segments of the gun industry. Modern Gun School's mission is to provide high-quality distance education using time-tested materials and hands-on projects designed to develop a proficiency in both the technique and the business of gunsmithing. Go to mgs.edu. MGS Trade School. Your future is waiting.
right, welcome back. This is Lock and Load, and I am talking to Dan Zimmerman from thetruthaboutguns.com. And, well, we have this story about a police officer who was the one that fired the shot that killed Breonna Taylor, which uh, that makes it sound like she was assassinated, but uh, it is, you know, it's a factual way of putting it. Um, what, what do we know about this uh, particular latest latest info? Well, just to remind your your listeners, Brianna Taylor um, lived in a, an apartment in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and the Louisville Police Department executed a no-knock warrant on her apartment. The problem was it was the wrong address. Uh, she was in there with her sleeping um, along with uh, her boyfriend, uh, three uh, non-uniform police officers burst in um, the boyfriend thinking that they were the tar- they were experiencing a home invasion opened fire and shot one of the police officers they returned fire and killed Brianna Taylor um, I think she was shot eight times um, and the um, the boyfriend was initially charged with attempted murder, um, but those those charges were eventually dropped. Um, the officer who was found to have uh, fired the shot that killed Taylor uh, was um, named Miles. Oh, goodness, it just went uh, right out of my head here. Um Miles Cosgrove, um, he was fired for um, violating use of force procedures and failing to use a body camera during the raid. Um, one, he, he was uh, there was a long FBI um, investigation um, that ultimately cleared him, um, so he's never he's never um, faced any criminal charges. Um, and the news now is that he has gotten another job on another police force outside of Louisville in Carroll County, which is, I think, northeast of, of Louisville. And um, local folks are not happy about that fact, that he will be uh, carrying a gun once again. Well, you know, let's let's discuss that, shall we? I mean, um, what exa- so was the was the warrant? Do we know that the warrant was actually going in the right? Was it at the right house? Have we has that part been determined to begin with? What was it? I'm sorry. What, what the warrant that they were serving? Uh, I know they were looking yes. for somebody. So were they in the right place? They were not. No, they had the wrong address. It was a, supposed to have been another apartment, I believe, in the same complex. Okay, so it was one of those. Um, when I don't know. This is one of these things where we get out there, and I sometimes I wonder how it works with self-defense. Where where does self-defense fall in if it's the police shooting at you? Where does self-defense fall in if it's the police shooting at you? That's a good question, especially when they're not in uniform. These were plainclothes officers. Right. Did so they, they these two law-abiding people, yeah. um, the boyfriend had a carry permit, not that he needed one. He was in a in his home, right? Um, and these three three unidentified people, you know, non-uniform people, break into the house in the middle of the night. What would you think? Um, Something's going to think you're the subject of home invasion. These well, okay. So here here comes the problem. 
What happens if they roll up on some dude that is a, you know, that's, he's a very tactically inclined kind of guy. And he sees him coming because he, he's got these cameras or something happening. And um, they engage, and he cleans their clock. What happens then? What's going to happen then? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, if in, in a wrong address situation, yeah, um, you think he'd be within his rights to defend his own life. Got people with guns breaking into your home. How does he know that you know if they roll up in in marked cars and in uniforms? Obviously, and you know that you you know in your example you had cameras and all that, so he sees them coming. What it's if, obvious that these are police officers, but that's not what this was. Yeah, were they all ninjas? Were they ninja up? I, I not. I, I don't know how they were dressed. I just yeah. know that uh, they apparently had body cameras, even though they were in plain clothes, and didn't use them. So their body cameras were not all? Correct. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I've listened to it, and I've listened to both sides of it. And uh, my my overriding thought is that when you're going to serve something where you're going to go in heavy, I kind of think you should really do what you got to do to verify you're in the right place. Yeah. Maybe that's exactly. just my, a quaint presumption of mine. Do, do we know how often this happens in the United States? I mean, they just had another one happen the other day. Uh, a wrong address spread. Yeah, the one where they shot the old man who came. To, they banged on the door. It was a domestic yeah. violence. You remember the? I can't remember where where it was. Domestic violence call. And they. I thought. Yeah, and they shot the dude down because he came to the door at O Dark Thirty with a gun. What would you do? Exactly. Now, exactly. So this can knock on your door at two a.m. or whatever. And you're going to take precautions. See. One of the things that I'm beginning to think, right, like that incident with that kid, Jarl, that uh, knocked on a door and he got shot by an old man. Yeah. This kind of, th these kind of things the cops are doing, this is sort of driving the fear along with all these home invasions and everything else that's happening in some of these places. And I just, it just makes me wonder when somebody's going to step back and say, hmm, maybe on our level we should be doing something, uh, to correct this before we we lose a lot of people. Well, a lot of police forces have changed their policies and they don't do no-knock raids anymore. Um, I, I don't know what the policy is on plainclothes police officers doing them, um, but uh, the Breonna Taylor killing um, did change, certainly changed policies in Louisville, but it, it, it drove changes in a number of other uh, police forces around the country. Right. Um, so, fortunately, some good came out of this. But um, yeah, it's just a horrible situation. Well, no um, doubt about it. No doubt about it. So I just, uh, you know, whenever I hear about stuff like this, my first thought is if the law enforcement, I law enforcement should be dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and they should be doing that because we need to have confidence in what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. This does no good at all for public confidence in your local law enforcement operation. Yeah. When they're knocking down door, the wrong doors in the middle of the night and then even worse, shooting people.
Well, we will see what we see that comes of this and everything else. I'm, 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 I, you think that this uh, new municipality will cave to the pressure and fire this officer? How, how well, big uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure they knew who he was. Right. Uh, I'm sure they know. Yeah, you know, there's, you know, they're outside of Louisville. They had to know exactly who he was and what his record was. Um, so my guess is that uh, they're not going to do that. My 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 thought would be that you know nowadays with I'm sure they're having retention with police and here we have a certified officer who's been certified by a police academy and everything else they're probably looking to take anybody they possibly can. I'm sure they are so getting a getting an experienced police officer no matter what the experience is always a a boon to something because I don't know I don't know of any little boys that want to grow up to be police officers right now. Yeah, and fewer are. Um, we're certainly finding that out here in uh, in Austin. It's getting hard to uh, hard to get cops here. So, and in a lot of major metropolitan areas, uh, a lot more are retiring and, and then uh, are coming in the other end of the pipeline. Right. Hang on for me, if you will. One more break, and then we will uh, we'll be back uh, talking to Dan Zimmerman. This all of these articles we're referencing right now are on the front page at the truthaboutguns.com. That's where you go to get the latest in the gun culture. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. Talking to Dean Weingarten, and, uh, well. Well, let's wrap this up by saying how this line with statistics with international comparison goes and what our opponents or the people who want the population disarmed will say, well, if we look at countries like the United States, the United States has more homicides with guns or homicide rate in general, and they'll say, Countries that we think are like the United, they won't say we think. The countries like the United States are Sweden and England. But you can make the same argument that's lying with statistics by not examining all the data. I can make the same argument. Well, the United States has a lot more guns, and it has a lot less homicides than countries that are like the United States. Countries like Brazil and Mexico, both of them are first world uh, our sec, uh, new world countries that are big countries that have very diverse populations that in Brazil suffered under slavery for about the same amount of time as the United States. So these countries are very much like the United States, and they have much higher homicide rates. So we could talk about Jamaica. I mean, you can cherry pick which countries you want to uh, compare to the United States, and that's what the other side does. So they say rich countries, you know. Um, they use they cherry pick a particular type of of uh, means of culling the data so they get the result that they want. That's called lying with statistics. And it's a you know, certain amount of uh, confirmation bias, too. They only look at the data they want to look at. So do you want to move on to something else? Let's no? move on to something else, shall we? 
So uh, let's see. Oh man, let's let's try. Let's talk about Nebraska. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's talk about Nebraska. Nebraska sort of uh, happened, and uh, it didn't. Uh, I I didn't see it coming. Well, I I've, I've been covering it for several years, so I saw it coming. <laughs> it's, they've been trying to pass constitutional carry very seriously for about six or seven years. And the the person who is really pushing it, or pushed it successfully, and I give him enormous credit, is Senator Tom Brewer. He has been working diligently to pass constitutional carry in Nebraska for over six years. And the bill this year is Nebraska Legislature LB-77. And it passed what I would call is the, the, was the crucial closure vote at 11.25 a.m. on April 19th, 2023. April 19th, I think, is the day that the battles of Lexington and Concord started. So it has some significance there. And uh, Governor Jim Pillen, who's a Republican, has promised to sign the bill, and they he is expected to sign it, I think, on the 26th of April, so coming up pretty quickly. And this took a lot of finesse and a lot of work to make happen. Now, Nebraska already has open carry, so you can carry a pistol in a holster openly without a permit in Nebraska. And so what this bill did was it, it removes the restriction, the prohibition on carrying a concealed pistol without a permit. So it restores the right to carry a loaded pistol in most public places without a permit, either openly or concealed, and it also had a large change, well, significant change is probably a better word, in a number of uh, statutes in Nebraska by strengthening the preemption statute, saying that basically the Omaha and Lincoln uh, local ordinances uh, could not contradict the state statute. And the actual wording was something like this, notwithstanding the provision of any home rule charter, counties, cities, and villages shall not have the power to regulate the ownership, possession, storage, transportation, sale, or transfer of firearms or other weapons, except as expressly by provided by state law, or to require registration of firearms or other weapons. And any county, city, or village ordinance, permit, or regulation violation of this subsection is declared to be null and void. Now, that was one of the sticking points on the bill over the last six years because Omaha requires registration of handguns. And I think there is a provision for that in Lincoln, too. And the police lobbies and the municipal government lobbies in both those states both those cities were adamantly opposed 
to ending their local rules on firearm registration. Now, the mechanism of how this worked is that because Nebraska has a unicameral legislature, this means there's only one body. It's, they call them senators, and they don't have a House and a Senate. They just have senators in the legislature. But they didn't want the legislature to be able to just steamroller legislation anytime they wanted by a simple majority vote. That was one of the objections to going to a unicameral legislature. So what they did was they created a procedural slowdown that made it very hard to pass any legislation unless it was unanimously uh, agreed on. And what they have is that every piece of legislation, every statute has to go through three votes where a filibuster is allowed for eight hours. And to stop the filibuster and bring the legislation to a vote, it requires votes of 33 senators, not two-thirds. 33 votes would be just a bit over two-thirds for a 49 Senate total. But it's not two-thirds. It's 33 votes. So if a person does not vote for the legislation, it's just as good as uh, voting against the legislation. So only 18 people have to either not vote or vote against legislation to stop it. And you need 33 votes to pass it. And that has to happen three times. So not only do you have to get 33 votes once, you have to get it again, and then you have to get it again. So it's a huge barrier. Last year, they came within one vote of passing. And finally, this year, they passed it the first time, they passed it the second time, and the third time, they got exactly 33 votes which was necessary, all 32 Republicans voted for a closure on the final reading, and one Democrat, Senator Mike McDonald of District 5, voted for closure, and that was enough to pass it. Now, I have to say that in Nebraska, they don't have partisan uh, labels on the senators. But there are websites such as the highly recommended Ballotpedia, which says, well, these tend to be Democrats and these are Republicans. And they have 32 Republicans and 17 Democrats. And so they had to get one Democrat to vote with them to pass it. And they did that. And the the signature to make the bill uh, become law It's supposed to happen on Wednesday, the 26th of April, that uh, Governor Tillen will sign the bill at that time. But the bill doesn't go into effect immediately because it's not an emergency bill. So the way it works in Nebraska is that once a bill is passed, then it will go into effect three months after the end of the legislative session. Right. So that's about July. But uh, we're going to have to pick this up. 
later on in the week when you come back before we t- call it quits for this week. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, and it's always a pleasure. And uh, Nebraska is fascinating because of their weird legislature in the U.S. Indeed. Back again in 21 hours. Between now and then, remember, this has never been about gun control, not once, not ever. It has been. It's always going to be about total control. This has been Lock and Load. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.